Welcome to Mystical Dispute, the limited Magic Gathering debate podcast. I'm Garrett Gardner, a.k.a. G-Guards. And I'm Carl Chase, a.k.a. Two Duck Cubed. And I'm Greg Hatch, a.k.a. Greg Hatch. <laughs> <laughs> he jumped the gun. I didn't get to introduce him. Oh, but... oops. Okay, well, take that out then. <laughs> oh, no, no. That's, <laughs> no, 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 that's staying in. That, no, that's... that was good. That was perfect. <laughs> and today, we are going to debate... The Bad Cards with Greg Hatch. Welcome, Greg, back to the show. Dude, what's up? I'm really excited to have you back. Your last appearance was for Dragonfly Suit back in Kamigawa Neon Dynasty, and it is, I think, one of our all-time best episodes, so, you know, thanks for letting us borrow your brain. Wow, oh, ha- happy to for one of the all-time best formats. <laughs> what a dream that was. Oh, yeah. Remember back then in the, the good format? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> It feels like a walk on the uh, walk on the beach back then. We, we were worried about Nijisu card advantage on turn two, not just being dead. Yeah, <laughs> At zero life on turn two. Yeah, exactly. Oh, they've got a two-two menace on turn oh, oh. three that can't attack yet. Oh no! Yeah, this this uh, unassailable, you know, card two cards up on me on turn four. I have to get this back somehow over the next four turns. <laughs> Yeah, no, I, I, uh, comparing it to New Phyrexia, it feels like I'm, uh, <laughs> I'm being held hostage by, by the die roll. Greg's last appearance was almost a full year ago, and for those of you that have been listening since then, like Garrett mentioned, you know we had a great debate on Dragonfly Suit. This time around, just like last time, Greg is having some of the best results of any human alive in Phyrexia All Will Be One. If you go to the 17 Lands Leader board and check out just kind of win percentages in general... Greg has a 65.6% win rate. And if you kind of look through all of the high volume players out there, he is one of the top, if not the top for the number of games that he has played. And I can tell you from talking with Greg a lot over the last couple of weeks, has some really interesting and unique ideas on the format. And that success is absolutely not a fluke. So really just excited to get right into it. All right, let's jump right into... In this corner, opening takes. So those of you who have listened to this podcast uh, even once before, you will know my approach, Garrett's approach to magic. Boring, vanilla, basic, leg day, vegetables, etc. Everybody makes fun of me. Whatever. Okay, fine. If there is a single person on this earth that I have ever talked to and I have ever met that has a more opposite approach to limited magic than me, it is Greg Hatch, which is why I am super excited to hear what his takes on the terrible cards that more than ever in any other format I avoid like the plague in Phyrexia All Will Be One. So my opening take is, you know my opening take, but I want to hear what Greg has to say because really it does enlighten me on where you can go when you're anti-meta when you approach this game. Greg, can you just take us through your journey in this format? Oh, sure. Where did you start out and how you've evolved your thinking as it's gone on? Well, the first thing is I, I noticed a lot of feedback from people on Twitter that it was a, a rough format to get started in. So I, I sort of <laughs> let everybody else trip over themselves and, and sort of learn from the basics about what's important and sort of pick up on common themes. I was starting at like low level silver or something. So like, you know, I got I got a lot of like momentum with the optimism about of how to win or whatever. But once I got to the diamond levels, all the things that I'd learned and it sort of fallen away and I had to like reapproach how I was prioritizing picks. So where I started was was with white. It has the the most aggressive cards that are relevant early, the most potential to to stabilize late, and like some of the, like the only like army in the can type cards like indoctrination attendant and basilica whatever. And so like I never really drafted anything that was non-white my entire time. Red green felt like it was powerful but like reliant upon very specific cards that you can't get all the time. There was that one, like, um, Red Green 4, uh, does it one damage to everything? Cinder Lash Ravager. I literally don't even know his name. I just know that you can lose to it pretty easily. <laughs> I probably have three in my collection on, on Arena, uh, <laughs> you know, total. <laughs> because the card is, like, it, it's taken so highly, but, like, it's uh, it, it's card I've never taken. So, like, my journey has always been, like, what colors can go with white and be good? Because if I take that color, then I'll always have enough playables, and I'll have enough flexibility during the draft to prioritize what I need. So that my journey on that has been white-green first with Infect, uh, or Toxic, I suppose. And then it's been uh, blue-white artifacts. And then I just started drafting blue-white artifacts 20 drafts in a row. We're talking from pick zero, pack zero, blue-white artifacts. Uh, and I had the most success doing that. And we know Garrett loves blue in this format. Oh, yeah. Uh, Garrett, how many blue cards have you registered in the drafts that you've played so far? So, Carl, it's funny. I've drafted exactly one blue deck so far, and it was because I got that blue sun zenith we were talking about. And I still was not able to trophy with that. So I'm just swearing blue off forever. It's easy to blame <laughs> 
the like when you draft a rare and don't win with it, it feels particularly bad in this format because you're looking forward to playing with a new card because everything is so homogenous and like you yep. know, it's so fast. <laughs> yeah. You just desperately want one unique effect to occur in this format ever. And <laughs> a slice of life, please. Yeah, like I, I've gotten to the point now where I'm taking Crawling Chorus over Kaya in like five seconds. Mm. It's like there's no yep. chance I'm going to get to Kaya anyway. The games don't last that long. Plus, it's not blue white. That's my own thing. But in general, like anything that costs like a lot that's supposed to be like good is just kneecapped in this set completely even cards like nissa like you have to realize like it's probably good but it costs four life i better consider that yeah so if i could make a suggestion because i know greg you are chopping at the bit to talk about blue white but hold on just one second oh sure because the place that you've had the most influence on me are on those white based toxic decks and i had my worst stretch in magic ever playing phyrexia all is one i had a spot where my win rate was down 13 points over a stretch of 250 something games i was flailing and through a lot of discussion with you on the white based toxic decks it's how i kind of got my groove back a little bit and started to generate a little bit of success so we could start there and then go nuts on blue white sure well carl let's make it official and go right into white toxic First, I want to talk about like the most important card in, in the format when it comes to like prioritization and like mitigation is Crawling Chorus. It's that one one for one white. It's got Toxic One. When it dies, it makes a little mite, which I like to say it, it might be good. It might not be like it, it, you know the relevance is kind of like might not be there. <laughs> Dad jokes on Mystical's view. <laughs> you really have to like trade with it twice because of how important the early Toxic is. So like yeah. it presents a threat if you're on the play for sure, and it presents a relevant something on the draw. So that's why I wanted to start there is because the Crawling Chorus as a 1-1 one, one Toxic 1 is already relevant on the play, as anything would be on the play as, as one mana 1-1 one, one Toxic. But the fact that it trades means that they can't even trade effectively with it. They can't defend against it very well. So on the play, it's excellent. But that's not why it's great, because everything is good on the play in this format, or better than normal. It's also good on the draw. It helps you survive and maintain relevance on the draw. So the reason why I bring that up specifically about Crawling Chorus is that I always try to make sure on the draw, everything I have in my deck is at least functional or if it's not good on the draw, it at least supplements the rest of the deck in a way that's uh, essential. I'll get to this later about why that's important when I talk about the Eye of Melkatar or whatever that card is. But with White Toxic, all the cards you're taking, you want to be good on the defense, but also maintain threats on the play. So things like Incisor Glider is a great example of this. It's not necessary on the play to have that be your two drop. It's not as good as the other infect cards generally at getting your opponent infected, but it's better on the draw and you will infect them eventually down to three poison and it will come along for the ride later when you're attacking with the team. So you, you want to prioritize that one three flyer over a card like the two two first strike, Toxic One, for example. So like these considerations are, are how I started to like maintain a win percentage on the draw, which I felt like if I'm having a 40% win percentage on the draw, like that's where I can improve the most with my decisions during the draft and during deck building. So how can I optimize that? And so that's what I started coming on to the three, four indoctrination attendant. Everybody knows that card's great. I'm saying it's better than pacifism. Mm -hmm. Like I'm saying it's better than like almost anything because on the attack, it's still relevant. You can attack in with it. It creates two creatures on the defense. It, it blocks almost everything in red green. It resets all the removal in any white base deck. And it represents a threat that they have to use a to get past, even if they have the answer to it, which disrupts their curve. All of that, and it produces uh, an artifact for the white-based artifact deck, so you can pivot from Toxic into the artifact deck seamlessly. So these are things that, like, Pacifism is never a passable card, typically. It's one of the top white picks in every format it, that Pacifism's in, but Noctization Attendant is so far above Pacifism in my pick order, like, I don't even consider it. The pick is not close. So it's funny, because so far, I have built quite a number of white Toxic-based decks, and so far, to put it in a certain way my picks are quite different than what you're describing so i'm curious to learn more yeah so in my mind picking a card that's better on the play than is in the draw gives you less equity on, on like where the impact is so like what, what's the wins over replacement on the play versus incisor glider or the first striker it's probably not that large but on the draw it's huge mm. and so like percentage points go way up if you're on the defense and you're saying because incisor glider is a decent blocker right it makes them have to do something to get past it a lot of the time right it forces them to have something let's pause on that one because when i hear you talk about particular game states or or just talk about play in general in this format, I keep hearing you say the words, I want to do that because it disrupts their curve. Oh, yes. Just say a little bit more on that. Oh, yeah. Okay. So in this format, anytime they're not playing a spell on curve, 
I haven't given these names. I don't have like a poster on my wall, but I have, there's like five or six things I think about that every hand wants, ideally, in their opener and on their first few turns. Sure. And you can't have all of them. So my thought is, what do they not have? And how do I determine what that is quickly? Do they not have removal in their hand? Do they not have creatures? Do they not have pump spells? Are they short on lands? Like, I'm just like keeping this in my mind, both during the game and outside of the game, anticipating what these turns might look like. So when I think talk about disrupting their curve, what I mean to say is on turn three, do they really want to play a creature? Or do they really want to be busting through my, my defenses? Most of the time in this format, they would rather play a creature. Right. So if I'm making them cast Compliate Devotion, the card that's one white and one instant, plus two, plus two, draw a card if it's on Inf, Toxic, I don't actually care that much that they drew a card off that. They didn't play a creature that turn. I blocked, right. I spent one mana blocking a two mana creature, and then they played a two mana pump spell and did not play a second creature. They have one more card in my hand? Sure. Fine. Like we're, we're never gonna, you know, we're not gonna see the end of our hands this game. Maybe not. You know. So you're saying tempo is king in this format. If nothing else, tempo. There's so much to consider with in terms of value. You don't want to lose sight of things that are important with Magic fundamentals. It's easy to get totally unhinged, but tempo is is more important than ever on a degree I've never seen before. Mm. Like I, I don't think I've seen it since the morph days where we were taking two drops over rares. Right. Remember um, in the onslaught format and the uh, cons of Tarkir format. Any set that has morphs where like you expect a three drop 100 percent of the time or like it's really important that you have things done on curve cards like shock were better than they've ever been before one right. mana tricks were better than they've ever been before so card advantage is always a consideration but not more so than not falling behind mm -hmm. so in this format that's all it is you can always make up your card advantage later or have a plan to do that later but if you don't have your early game set up you won't get to that stage of the game enough of the time and you won't have enough way to interrupt them so that they can't play aggressively in a way that threatens you force them to have everything they need because they won't have everything also, even if they have everything, make sure that it disrupts them in a way that you can recover from, like disrupting their three and four mana turns. I know this is the bad card section, but that, that, when I was talking about the uh, the curve part yeah. of this, that's what's going to provide context around all the picks. When I say the 1-3 flyer is better than a 2-2 two, two first striker, it's not because I think that that's true. It's because on the draw, it's more necessary that you survive with cards that are relevant than it is to have powerful cards to attack your opponent with in your aggressive deck. Because you're not aggressive on the draw in this format. Everybody's coming down your throat. So I know that this is the bad cards. We're not really talking about, you know, bad cards. Like some of these cards are around average or above average. But your pick order for them is wildly different than I would say the average player. And hello, how are you? I am the average player here who definitely is not taking incisor glider over that 2-2 first strike, which I actually love quite a bit in white. Right. Never in a million years. <laughs> I think I would ever take that pick. And, you know, although to say it, of course, Crawling Chorus obviously performs quite well, but I find myself struggling to take it sometimes just as the resident one mana one one hater. Right. <laughs> so I think that with the context this still counts as bad cards <laughs> that's the key what you just said there is everything about this format you have to have the tenacity you have to have the, the, the wherewithal you have to have the resolve to take a card like crawling chorus are you saying i lack grit <laughs> you could do it a little bit here there, there's an issue at hand here okay it takes a certain kind of amount of strength to take a one one crawling chorus over a pacifism i'm telling you yeah. in this format it's essential there's removal that when you have it in your deck you're using it on a two two on the draw a two drop would have done just the same job there right you don't have a lot of the luxury of flexibility. And so like, I only talked about Crawling Chorus because it was the one I could defend the easiest. I'm about to get the Sinew Dancer and Swooping Lookout as like also cards you want to think about like actively having in your deck. Even if you're not, I was talking about this with Carl earlier, Sinew Dancer is a card I'm not unhappy to play even if I have zero chance of corrupting them. <laughs> Well, please tell me about that next because Sinew Dancer is not a bad card. That's the one mana one one that can tap creatures for three and a white, but the cost is reduced to just white when they're corrupted. But it's definitely not something I would ever put in a non-toxic deck, I have to say. People respect it when you play it, regardless of mm. whether or not you're corrupted or not. It has an emotional attachment to it. People like their stuff tapped. People are human also, and they react to their emotions. And so, <laughs> and so you take advantage of that? You have to, all right? I was raised by a school counselor, so I know how to manipulate humans. <laughs> anyway, Masinu Dancer is one of those cards where if you play it early, like it's, you're happy to have a card on board early. It's nice. It's a relief that you could use your mana on that turn. Sure. If you draw it late, you're not going to be like pissed. It's going to be useful for you. It's not going to be absolutely 
absolutely you know, useless. In fact, it's sometimes better than Crawling Chorus in that regard, mm-hmm. where like something's going to happen to it. And it's going to draw removal because they're going to think, oh, it's going to turn on soon anyway. You don't have a lot of way to force them from two to three. But like when I talk about uh, adaptive Spore Singer, the one that's like one green and two for a two-two Vigilance when it comes into play, you can get plus two, plus two or proliferate. Yeah. The reason I like that card, and it goes late, you can get 15th tables all the time. It's not sure. because it's powerful. It's because it gets them to three, which is the important part. Three toxic. Exactly. Gets them to three toxic. So it turns on your incisor gliders and other stuff where like other cards just don't have that in the bag. And so like, just like Dragonfly uh, Suit for those that saw the other episode, if you can know in the back of your mind that you can have these cards on lockdown, like you're going to table them, you're going to be able to get them and no one else is going to go after them. You don't have to fill that part of your curve anymore. Right. You don't have to fill your three drops anymore. You see it early in a pack and you know you're going to wheel it. That's what you're saying. Right. So the Vorak, for example, nothing wrong with the card. Love it. It's got that eccentric farmhand feel to it where it's like, it's just a nice feeling to have where it's a three drop that produces value. It's one green and two for a three, three. You get a card or you can proliferate. Now, the proliferate's the part I'm excited about there. Right. The land, I might not ever get to the point where the card advantage is going to be that important. It's nice that it fixes me, but I'm interested in the proliferate. So if I get a replacement effect where it's a 2-2 two, two that proliferates, and instead I took a one drop over it, I'm absolutely happy doing that. And I will take Crawling Chorus over Rack in a green-white infect deck every single time. In fact, that pick is not close, for example. <laughs> and the reason why is because you, one drops are at a premium. For every Crawling Chorus you don't play, that's a Sinew Dancer you have to play. Because you have to be on the field on one mana. You have to be in there. Just trying to vomit that whole hand out as quickly as you can. Right. That's why the cultivator in this set, the one, two for one green, and you can tap it to untap a land by removing an oil counter. So it's a really slow mana elf in this format, but it's a one, two. It's got two toughness for God's sake. <laughs> so there's, there'd be no other text in the card. I'm playing it. One green for a one, two. It's in. On this topic, you had made a comment to me. This is pretty early on when we started talking about the format. You made a comment to me about infested flesh cutter as being a card that you liked. Oh. Like, not loved, but but a card that you liked. And the Flesh Cutter's an equipment for one and a white. Equipped cost two and a white to give a creature plus two plus O, oh, and it makes a might token whenever that creature attacks. And I, and I was sitting there, I'm like, I'm looking at the stats. The stats are terrible. It's got, now it's a 51.4% win rate, but I think it was maybe under 50% at the time. 47, I can tell you. <laughs> so Greg knows. It was 47% at the time. <laughs> and I'm like, how, this card is awful. Like, it's a format where, again, you're trying to prioritize not dying, and you could pay five mana, and it basically doesn't do anything to help you defend. And, and I'm like, what's going on? And you just made this comment of, I showed you a deck that I could have played Infested Flesh Cutter, and, he, and you go, oh, it'd be terrible in this deck. And I'm like, why? And you're like, well, because you already have a bunch of two drops. It needs to be in a deck with a lot of one drops, so you can play your one drop, play the, the Flesh Cutter on turn two, equip it on turn three, and then just basically be able to make a 1-1 every turn of the game until the end of time. And I'm like, oh, duh. There's a major curve consideration piece of that that we're all thinking about curve, but this format puts such a priority on the exact spots in your curve and how you're prioritizing both within the draft as well as in your deck building. And I'll, I'll speak to this quickly where like, you don't want a lot of cards that do what Flesh Cutter does. Like Basilica Shepherd, for example, oddly enough, as it sounds, kind of does what the Flesh Cutter does. Right. But the reason I like Flesh Cutter is because it costs two and it does not cost five because you only equip it when it actually would be good. So you pay two mana once and then as soon as they tap out or show weakness to it, then you can equip it and get your value. In. Now, when you have a bunch of one drops, that threat happens on turn three. Now, in an average deck, it might happen on turn four and it won't be as good. But if you have four one drops in your white deck and you have you're short on two drops or rather you don't want to have to prioritize two drops because you already have your one drops and you see a flesh cutter in a pack with 14 cards in it then you could probably be sure that the Flesh Cutter is going to table. Or at least at the time when I was talking about it, it was routine that it would table. And so having that as a slot in your deck means you don't have to have that late game value engine highly prioritized in your deck. And you also can have kind of a two drop sort of like accounted for for the next seven picks. You don't have to worry about that as much. Now you can tell yourself, oh, I have a Flesh Cutter on the wheel. I can pass this other card that would help me gain card advantage and instead prioritize an earlier pick. And so every time you see a card that will wheel, that will give you that card advantage, that gives you like a license to take a lower card advantage relevant spell and a higher tempo threat because you're anticipating the wheel coming. When it doesn't, if you're going to be broken by it, then like you have to reevaluate how you're drafting. But I'm never going to miss a flesh cutter. 
It's just nice to know that I can rely upon it coming late. Right. And having enough picks like that lets me pick those unhinged one drops as highly as I do, because all that matters is I don't have a deck at the end of the day with one one drop in it. And I feel like I have no chance to win on the draw now. It doesn't matter how many pacifisms I have if I'm not active on turn one. Because you're too slow. So one of the things about one mana one ones is at some point, unless you've got a way to bust through, they get very quickly outclassed. So... What is your approach to, I guess, busting through with the Toxic deck and and what are some of the cards that you're looking to avoid a situation where their board is just a lot bigger than yours and and you're dead in the water? Right, I've got that question too. How do you close these games if all you're playing are little tiny baby one drops and stuff? Well, let's talk about my opponent's creatures on the side of the board, okay? Let's talk about early creatures other decks. Sure. We have 3-1, we have 3-1, we have 2-1, we have (laughs) 2-1, we have 1-1, we have 2-1. So like, people are not able to block what one super easily. Dune Mover, 2-1. Everything is just very low toughness in this set. Oh yeah. There's that equipment, the barbed battle fist or whatever. I don't even know how to spell it, but it's one red and one for a 3-1 essentially. Yep. Because of that, more likely than not, you're going to be able to have relevance for your one drops because they'll be able to block a might, they'll be able to block a 2-1 or a 3-1, or they'll just be able to help double block with a high toughness creature to add an extra point of power. So you don't need to bust through, although I do prioritize cards that do that. What you actually need for a one drop to be playable is a format in which it can contribute to the defense sure. in a meaningful way. And so if a one drop can con- contribute to a defense, your other typical way of breaking through that you always play is still going to do the job for you. And that one drop doesn't need to be a two power one drop in order to be relevant in the set. It just needs to have one power in the set. So I, while you probably have no problem playing a two one, you probably wouldn't be asking me how a two one would break through. But in this set, that's not necessary. So two power is, you know, not as essential to be relevant in that, in that stage in the game. Now, to your point, though, to break through, I prioritize cards like uh, Hex Gold Hover Wings, one uh, white and three equipped creatures in flying and uh, Garrett, you're going to want to listen here. It gives all equipped creatures plus one plus zero only. Uh, so, so it doesn't actually. It, it, <laughs> <laughs> you know, just because I don't know how to read and I tweet about it doesn't mean we have to bring it up in the podcast. Man, I, I love that's a great callback. You, you tweet about one doofus move and Greg is on you, man. For those who don't know, I missed lethal by one because I thought the plus one plus O was going to apply to an already equipped creature and you know it doesn't do that but you know whatever (laughs) or it does it just already shows it on the arena interface and you know yeah sometimes i feel like i need to go back to paper for a little while (laughs) it's a unique wording for sure that's one of those everybody makes the mistake one time things in this set yeah (laughs) of which there are many so that card is obviously everybody kind of knows that card is pretty good it's a Mm -hmm. snapping drake three two for four it has relevance it's what is that card um from kaldim that two mana raven wings i think it's called yes it was just a card that you didn't want to play because it it had risk associated with it where like you could break through late but it's not a creature this one's both it's great yes it's a great version of that and you always want it i take it over pacifism again now you're gonna hear this me say this a lot because pacifism is i think the most important card that people overvalue in this set Mm -hmm. not to say it's bad it's just you're you're never gonna have the target you want you can't wait so it's gonna be bad and that probably means you don't play very many because they go so early right that's right the only reason i take them is to cut white sure okay i'll take a white and blue card over anything doesn't matter how good it is because i don't (laughs) want them to to go white and blue i love passing black removal for example because it's Mm. if i take a crawling chorus over a black removal spell it's even better than taking a crawling chorus over nothing because i'm getting my opponent into black i prefer it and i've seen you take incisor gliders over like the six six flyer in black uh i've seen you take them or at least consider them over bloated contaminator like (laughs) i i can't i can't can't defend either of those specifically but you bring up a good point that i do take them over a lot of things okay maybe it wasn't those it was something crazy no 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 no, no. you took it over something crazy no you're right that i did that i'm just saying i'm not i'm not i'm not here to defend that Uh, (laughs) what you're saying is that carl got a glimpse into your mad science That's, that's correct. No, I, I, I was, I, I, I'm unprepared with, to back that up with data or, or even a sense of, of, of rationale. I just knew what was right, and, and I, I was unprepared to explain myself. Our, our feet of the Dross especially is a card I've never beaten, and I also pass, so it's really tough. Food for thought. Uh, exactly, yeah. Just something to think about. No, uh, anyway. So, yeah, other rares, though, like, I don't mind passing over. Like, you know, uh, Koth, for example. I don't even look twice at it. Sure. Who needs planeswalkers? Yeah, yeah like, <laughs> anything that provides card advantage over a series of turns, like I just don't have a crystal ball, much less the, the resources to buy one on, on turn two and three. Like I don't have the time to take a turn off and hope it goes well. Like my default assumption is that if I play a spell that needs to be defended in order to be good, it will not be good. That's like my heuristic is like anything that needs to be defended or I need to untap for it to represent something meaningful, then it's not going to be something I consider highly. There's one exception to this rule and I'll talk about it at length for as long as you'll let me. <laughs> I have Melkatar because 
that is about as bad as it gets on the draw, but I love the card. Don't worry, you'll have time to go into that in the next section. <laughs> so I was talking about the Hover Wings, but the other card is, I call it Gold Helmet. It's not the name of the card, but uh, it's Gold Warden's Helm. And it's a card that I look to put in my deck. Not to say I take it highly, but I expect to have two in my deck. I want two in my deck. If I don't have two, it's fine. I want a replacement for it because the card does something really specific. It helps my early drops become relevant on defense, even more relevant than they were before. Better double blockers. And two, it's a 2-3 on turn three, which I gotta say is not bad in this format. Having that three toughness is good against a whole series of these like token rebel 2-2s. And having that extra toughness in general against the cards that are good in other uh, decks like Blightbelly Rat and other like toxic cards that have two power only is just a good way to stabilize. And then being able to have value afterwards and have a, something that you can bounce with Indoctrination Attendant on time. So Indoctrination Attendant now can make a value creature at no cost to you, when before it would cost you a land or a drop. And not to give you more fuel, but if you're drafting 1-1 one, one so early, a lot of the three power early drops have one toughness. So you don't have to worry about those with your two, three, right? Oh yeah, they're not gonna have three toughness, certainly. Yeah, like they'll have one or two. Oh, I'm, I'm just saying that usually the three power creatures that could get through your two, three, they also have one toughness. Yes. Those one drops come in handy there because they block that three one or whatever. I didn't get your point at first, but you're totally correct. I didn't even consider that. That's probably what makes the card so good too is because I don't have to actually sacrifice this three drop for a two drop very often. I'll have the one drop to jump in the way. That's t that's a great, that, that fills a lot of gaps in my in my logic that I, I needed anyway. This is great. You're helping me out. You hear that everybody? Everybody makes fun of me for being Garrett the vanilla player and I just made a point to Greg Hatch. Come on. No, no I, 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 was, I was having trouble defending it too. But the point was about interaction action between vanilla power and oh, toughness. So Carl, don't ruin this for me. Okay. <laughs> no, it's true though, because like in my mind, I'm thinking like, oh, it trades with, with the three ones. It, it, it doesn't not trade with early threats, but like it even lets you take that toughness longer in the game than I expected, which is the, the relevant mm -hmm. part. And being able to put that gold helmet onto, again, not the name of the card, onto the three, four. <laughs> so it becomes a three, five instead. Indoctrination attendant is the three, four that I, you want to play in all the white decks. Having it have five toughness means yep. you can block everything in the format because everything has four power or rather they're like, you know, you have the Furnace Strider. Mm -hmm. I guess you say everything has four power, but like five is a big difference. Well, there, there's barely any five or more power creatures for right. sure in this format. It doesn't die to the, the one red shock. Part of why the, the Ravager is so good probably is because it is yep. a five five, but it's like the only one I can think of. The other one is the uh, the Lattice Mantis thing, right, right. which is uh, my actual mortal enemy. I hate that card. I've never <laughs> won with it, always lose to it. Th the third card here, besides the gold helmet, is uh, Mirin Bardish. One white four for an equipment. It has four Mirrodin, exclamation mark, two two, and it comes to play as a 4-3 Vigilance. Yeah. And you can equip it afterwards for plus two, plus one in Vigilance for four mana. Hefty cost. So the 4-3 better be good enough. And it is. It's not so bad in this format. But to bust through, I anticipate having Mirren Beardash in my deck. At least one, hopefully two tops. It's just a way to break through later that doesn't cost you much. It's also a non-creature artifact for things that care about non-creatures and artifacts without sacrificing your creature type. So you don't have to lower your creature count while also being able to trigger these non-creature effects, which is doesn't come up in, in white-blue as much, but it comes up for things like Atmosphere Sphere Surgeon, the one blue and one two one that puts oil counters for non-creatures and all the other non-creature oil accumulators. Uh, and so anything that's an equipment that's a creature too, lets you have synergy with those in ways you might not expect. You know, you don't have to go out of your way to play non-creature spells that aren't creatures and find yourself uh, unable to fill the board. And these equipment make sense in the approach that you're taking, right? Where you're just trying to jam as many one drops because you trade them and then you can just equip them and they get big, right? So yes. I'm following this logic, let me just tell you. <laughs> and, and to tie it off here is that what you sacrifice in card advantage, you make up with by having late game activations take the place of your card. Right. So like, you're not gonna have a spell to cast, but I have the equip cost. And so that'll tie you over for a turn or two while you're waiting to draw your next spell. And so you're never gonna be out of gas. If you survive into the late game, you're never gonna have a lack of things to do when you have cards like this in your deck. So that's why I value these higher. I mean, typically I'm not into playing five mana, four, three vigilances with a four mana activation cost after it dies. But in this set, it, like you say, it just works well with the other things that I'm forced to play because of the speed of the format. All makes sense to me. And uh, obviously the Zealous Conscription is one that you, I know, use sporadically depending on oh, yeah. the type of deck. Certainly the more likely to get to Corrupted, the more likely you are to play that one. But also just sometimes plus one plus one is good enough because you've got so many small creatures just bashing into each other. Zealous Contription, of course, is the one mana flash plus one plus one or plus two plus one in First Strike if they're Corrupted. But the First Strike is really the, the most important part to the sense of it. But like, yeah, sure. That boost is pretty non-trivial. I also think that like, I used to think it was better than I do now. These days, mm -hmm. it's not play 
playing a critical role in my deck. But if I need a combat trick, it's in. And I'd usually do. Or rather, not usually do, but like, it's something that like, another card usually replaces that slot. Like, if I have two pacifisms, I don't need a combat trick in my blue-white artifact deck, for example. But if I'm all creatures, zealous conscriptions, you're in. I need one mana tricks so that I can remain relevant when I go two drop, three drop, three drop, one drop. When I can go two spells on turn uh, four or something. So the reason I talk about zealous conviction in that way is you want to have something to interrupt or interact with your opponent that's very cheap. On that vein, I actually like Aspirant's Ascension more than Zealot's Conviction in the blue-white artifact deck because it allows you to play defense better. This is the one blue instant, plus one, plus three, gives toxic one, irrelevant, and gives flying. So typically not a card you'd want to play in a format unless you knew it's going to be good, but every a lot of the removal in this format is toughness-based. You have right. bolt charge. Trading one mana for three mana is totally something you want to be involved in. You have the fight spells, Infectious Bite, and Ruthless Predation. These are things that three toughness is going to get you right out of dodge for, and why pay two mana for it when you can pay one mana for it? There's a lot of two mana options out there to do that. Paying one is just better. One is less than two. But again, <laughs> you don't want many cards in that slot. You just have less mana on the draw. In fact, yep. you have so much less mana on the draw, like a ton less, like constantly 20% less than your opponent or whatever, I don't know, so whatever the number is. Like On their turn two, they've got three times as much as you. And on their turn three, they've got twice as much as you. And on their turn four, they've got 67% more than you. Yeah, yeah, it's a lot. And it's like any time you can make up for that, it makes a big difference. If you can trade one mana for three mana at any time during the first five turns, that's worth its weight in gold. It is gold, in fact. It's better than a card could ever be. But you don't want to play a lot of cards that lack synergy, which that card does. So, so that's why I don't like Zealot's Conviction that much when I need synergy maximized. When my synergy is taken care of, the card's great. When my synergy is not taken care of, it's not welcome. Synergy is most important first. So in the Infect deck, if you don't have the ability to, to bust through, it's a low value trick. If you do have the ability to bust through, it's incredible. Uh, in the Blue Out Artifact deck, if you have enough artifacts, you're right on in. If you don't have enough artifacts, it's on the bench. So let me use that opportunity to shift into our next section with... Blue White Artifacts. So I hear you like Eye of Malkator. Is that true? It's true. It's true. I must admit. <laughs> That's, of course, one of the best cards on the draw, right? You're talking about being good at the draw, so... Yeah, my logic is going to need some stretching here, uh, or at least the reasoning. <laughs> but the reason why I like that card specifically is because it's so good on the play that it's worth the disadvantage you have on the draw with it. Interesting. If you focus on it. I always say, think about the draw when you're picking about cards, because the play, the impact's not as great. Well, some cards, the impact on the play is so great that it's worth considering it in that way. And so a good example of that would be like Mandible Justicar, which I'll lead into I too. It's so good on the play and it's not that bad on the draw, but it's so good on the play that it makes up for it. it like if it was only lifelink on attacking, for example, it would still be good. But I is not that way. I of Malkatar is, you know, it's, it's not a creature. It's a three mana spell. It's not a creature. That's tough. That's tough in this format. I mean, I have to tell you, I have never even considered that card in my deck in a million years because of the, all the things you've described so far. Like, it, it, you play a three drop that doesn't block. Like, how are you ever going to recover? So please right. tell us. Yeah, so <laughs> there's not very many spells with flash in this format. So I value those cards extremely highly in order to make Eye of Melkatar not so bad on defense. Okay. I routinely go Eye of Melkatar Scry, which is, again, great because you don't want a high land count if you can avoid it. So it's nice to get that Scry so you can get your fourth mana without having to play 17 lands. You also just get no advantage by having too many lands in this, in this format. On top of that, on turn four, I want my eye to be able to block. So there's only a few ways to do this. There's Chrome Prowler, which I will speak to at length, and there's also Charge of the Mites. And Chrome Prowler is the 3-2 three, for three that taps a creature with Flash, and Charge of the Mites either does damage to a creature or makes two Mites, which are artifacts. So both of these cards are, are relevant considerations for having eye block. Now, it's not a mandatory thing. Now, maybe you're not threatened and you can just attack on turn four, and you don't have to worry about having a flash creature. But having access to these flash creatures in your hand alongside Eye of Melkatar allows you to play it early when otherwise you would be uncomfortable doing so. So on the draw, you can always play Eye of Melkatar on turn five or six if you want to. No one's forcing you to play at turn three. But when you can play at turn three, it's better. So by having flash spells in your deck, you're allowed to play at turn three when you otherwise would be irresponsible to do so. And Chrome Prowler is the best version of this because not only does it provide you a blocker in addition to the eye blocking, which Charge of the Mice does not do, but also taps a creature. So if you go eye into Prowler, You've taken care of three creatures that they're attacking with of almost any size, so you don't have to worry about Eye's disability anymore. In fact, you're probably eating one of their creatures too. So because of that, I know I'm going to get Eye of Melkatar at least two for free in every draft I have, and, and I play up to three 
happily as long as I have the flash spells to support it. And the more I have of those, the more I know for sure I'll win on the play because on the play it's just so daunting. And because of that, I take Chrome Prowler over every single blue card at common <laughs> and every single white card at common except for Crawling Chorus. All right, so Greg, let's say that you are faced with a first pack and there's a bunch of irrelevant cards. The rare is Luca Bound to Ruin, and that's the red and green planeswalker that makes mana and creatures and deals damage and all sorts of things. And three mana, three, two, Chrome Prowler. What are you taking? Happy to see Luca there because that means my opponent is going to be, uh, the person to my left is going to be red green. Happy to see it. <laughs> Love that the rare is, is Luca there because now I know for sure I'll have two first picks in the, in the second pack. So, pr- yeah, Prowler over Luca. I love it. Not even close because red green has has so many problems with it that you can have the best rares at four, five, six mana and just losing the draw every time. Red Green just has, it's got anemic problems with it where you have these slow draws that you cannot defend yourself or you're missing pieces. You'll have too much removal or too much pump and not enough creatures. Like there's the balancing act is too difficult in deck building and during mulligan decisions that Red Green's unreliable. I hate the color combination. Wow. It is the best color combination <laughs> when you have the right ratios in deck building and when like things go well, it's, it's hard to beat. But I can't rely on that as much as I can rely and blue-white being consistent uh, the way that I, I know the picks are going to come later. And I think that this is really speaks to how you draft. From the two episodes that you've been on Mystical Dispute, you like to look at a pack and look at the cards that you know you're going to get on the wheel. Yeah. When you're in red-green, you can't do that because everybody's drafting red-green in this entire format. So this makes complete sense to me, even if it is the strangest thing I've ever heard. <laughs> I love the long ball. Garrett, do you think you're going to start taking Chrome Prowler over uh, Luca Bound to Ruin? Yeah, oh, yeah. No, no, I, I, I don't, think, I don't think I'm going to quite get there, Carl but I am definitely learning something. I took incisor glider over maze runner. Okay. I, I am not kidding around. Big laws. Miglaws. Literally the best card in the format to have in your opening hand. And I, and I was like, I'll take a Tiger Glider four, over it. Four. Oh my God. Yeah, not, not, because it's, not because it's correct. It's blasphemy. Because like, I just don't have success with red green. I just don't have success. Sure, yeah. I've had the rares. I've had the cards. It's just an unreliable color to have everything go right for. So I just I just passed the buck. My percentage is improved by having that responsibility go in someone else's hands. I'm way happier with my average blue white deck than my, my above average start in red green. We, the look on Garrett's face right now is so good. I, I love yeah, it I so mean, much. You just have an infinite amount of grit more than me, I guess, is what it comes <laughs> down to. Because it's just like, I, I'm a coward that would take the best card in the set, I guess. I don't know. I, I do follow, but it's it's just so far and beyond uh, how I approach yeah. this game on every single level. I love it. I can't say it's correct, but I do know that my success rate is hard to argue with. I mean, it's undeniable. Yeah, it's It might undeniable. be just the way I play, too, is the other thing. Like, like, like you know, there's other parts of Red Green that I'm not well, familiar with. we say here a lot, actually, people lean into what their preferences are and that's what you're doing and i think that's a it's a good thing to do it's it, it's good to know what the alternatives yeah. are but it's also good to lean into your strengths yeah i definitely recognize it as a leak i would like <laughs> to say this i don't know if there has been a set and a person combination where i have learned more from that person than greg hatch and phyrexia all is one but <laughs> i am not taking incisor glider over miglaws <laughs> I am not taking Chrome Prowler over Luca. And the other fun little side conversation we had was I had a blue white deck and I had a Sea Chrome Coast. And you were like, well, are you sure you want to play that Sea Chrome Coast? Because what if you draw it on turn four? I'm like, Greg, you have to pry the Sea Chrome Coast out of my cold, dead hands before I consider cutting Sea Chrome Coast. I will not do it. You want to get into it? Let's get into it. Okay, I'm going to I'm gonna defend this right now. I, I'm into it. So Sea Chrome Coast is the white-blue duel. It comes into play tapped if you have three more lands. But now I'm also really curious what you think about the Sphere lands, those common tap lands that you can sack to draw a card. I will say one thing about the Sphere lands, okay? Nothing smells more disgusting of desperation than a Sphere land activation. So I will never be anywhere near a Sphere land activation in my entire life. I'll never play one until the day I die. Who has the time? I hate (laughs) tap lands 100%. I play a tap land exactly one time because I had zero one drops and I drew it and I couldn't play my four drop. That was the last time I (laughs) Play the spear draw land in the history of this format because I don't know if people know this. When it comes to play tactic, it doesn't tap for mana on the turn it comes into play. It does, and it, 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 you know, it's something I had to learn. So, uh, but but, but Sea Chrome Coast is an example where you think it actually helps you go faster, and I can't say you're wrong. However, you got a land smoother to consider, and if you're going main white splash blue, it's not necessary that you need to play your blue spells on time necessarily. You just need to play your actual spells on time. So if you don't have islands, you ostensibly kept a hand with spells, and if you can't, you know, you're not going to get your blue on time. It's it's not because your whole hand is blue. It's because you probably have white spells instead of islands. And so in my mind, I'm thinking, what's the the worst case scenario for Sea Chrome Coast? Well, I scry in 
into it with Melkatar when I need a fourth land and I see it. Do I put it on the bottom? Do I put it on the top? I need to cast my four drop. Okay, now what if I just draw it, which I do every turn, I draw a card and it's a Seachrome Coast and I only I kept a hand with three lands. Again, if I ever draw it after, after those first two draw steps or three draw steps, it's going to come, it's going to cost me a mana. It's not going to not cost me a mana. It's definitely going to cost me a mana. There's no way around that. So I have a deck with Basilica Shepherd, a Dune Mover and 15 lands. That Seachrome Coast is going to interrupt me if I draw it. And, you know, with three lands in play, 12 in the deck, that's like a 10% chance that my Basilica Shepherd comes into play on a turn later than I want to. Now, is that chance higher than me not having the blue mana because I didn't have what extra blue source? Maybe. I don't know. Didn't do the math. But I do, but I do know that I don't <laughs> like looking at cards that say tapped in this format. Cold, dead hands, Greg. Cold, dead hands. It's never going out of the deck. But I appreciate the thought process. How strong is your grip? That's... Uh, <laughs> So can we just rewind here for a second and get back to the blue-white artifact deck? Because I actually think that the community as a whole has got a better hold on this deck. And it has, in more recent weeks, been performing a little bit better. It's pretty streamlined, right? Just play artifacts and they all work together. So yeah. tell me, though, what is your overarching approach to building this deck? Okay, so Chrome Prowler is the card, the number one card that you want to have in your deck. There's no other card in blue that I care about as much as Chrome Prowler. Okay. Like, even I, Melkatar, does, doesn't matter that much to me. If I have five Chrome Prowlers, I don't care what versions of one drops and two drops I have. This deck is busted. Just straight up the best deck if you have five Chrome Prowlers. Now, the second most important thing is having enough relevant artifact two drops. That's why I value Incisor Glider so highly. Sure. That's why I value Mandicle Justicar so highly. I take Mandible Justicar over Basilica Shepherd, but it's very close. The reason why is because I can get a Mirren Bar Dish to replace Basilica Shepherd, not because it's better, but because I can anticipate getting one. Right, goes later. So I don't want to have my five drops set up. So I would rather improve my two drops with Mandible Justicar, the one white and one lifelink uh, that gets bigger with artifacts, than having a Basilica Shepherd, which is great, but it's worse in the draw and costs five. So like, if I, I won't be missing it, it won't be into the world if I don't have it. I'll have some other version of late game spells that I'll be deciding between. And so that's my approach is always okay. take the cards that I know are difficult to replace on the early curve and the later curve stuff might be worse, but it's less important that those are optimized because I'm going to see them less often. Sometimes it all works out great. You don't have to take Chrome Prowler over Basilica Shepherd, but you have to be prepared for this situation. You know, I was in Boy Scouts when I was a kid, you know, you have to be, have to be prepared for these tough choices, be prepared for anything. And uh, when you see a Basilica Shepherd, it's tough to just pass it for a three, two creature that costs three mana. Yeah. You have to know ahead of time that that's the cornerstone of what you're, you're working towards is having a card that turns on every part of your deck. It turns on the artifact theme and it turns on your on the draw survive theme, both of which are very important. And the latter being a part of everyone's consideration or should be. So that's key. For example, I take the three, two flash tap a creature over the aura that keeps them tapped, that proliferates. In fact, I don't even play that card because it just it's too expensive and it's hard to cast. Just to really drive it home, it's an aura that kills a creature for three mana. It costs two blue and one. So mesmerizing dose. That's a card I, I never take. I don't want to play it. I will if I have to. It's just not a good card in the draw, and it's not a good rate for what you're removing. You're paying more mana than they're usually, more mana than they paid for the creature they're removing, unless you get lucky. And it doesn't have, provide any synergy for your blue-white artifact deck. So that's a good example. Pacifism. No synergy for your blue-white artifact deck. Pretty good on the draw. Happy to see it, but it doesn't provide synergy. So it's important to know what you're giving up when you play a card like that. So I, I don't shrug at the pacifism and just pass it along, but I do take Indoctrination Attendant over it because it has way more synergy and it's a better defender. It's better to play on turn four than a pacifism against an average board typically because you don't have to commit a pacifism to a three power creature or something that they pay to play on turn two, which you would have to do if you have removal and no other option. Like you don't have the time to wait. So when I'm in the draft, those are the things I'm thinking about. Chrome Prowler over everything, two drops artifacts that are relevant over everything and passing things like Jaw Blade Double Striker because it's not as good on the draw. And with the artifact theme, you can't really reliably pump it up. And so like that card is hard to pass because you're, you're used to it being insane on the play and good in the toxic deck. But in the blue artifacts, it's like, I I don't give it, I don't care about this card. Who cares? I could do without it. Surgical Spellbomb is a card I like to see because it tables all the time. I've never seen a Telerian Geyser go so late, but here we are. And it's just awesome. And because it's an artifact, that also is your removal spell. So for every surgical you have, you can kind of like shrug off a pacifism later that you're passing. So if you have three surgicals, I don't mind passing pacifism anymore if I need creatures, which I do. If I don't have the surgical spell uh, skull bombs yet, I kind of have to take removal so I don't just get stuck in the water. So like I look for cards like that. So when I see a surgical surgical spell bomb in the, in the first pack, I could probably be sure I'm going to table it. So now when I see a pacifism second pick, I don't take it. I take the crawling course over it easily. So I, I, I get it. And I hear you're taking Incisor Glider, Mandible Jessica is really high for your two drop artifact slot. But one of the reasons that I don't think blue works great is that 
Escaped Experiment and Malachor's Watcher are both the two-drop blue artifacts. And Escaped Experiment is the blue two-drop 2-1 artifact creature that shrinks defending creatures' power on attack. And Malachor's Watcher is the two-mana 1-1 flying vigilance artifact creature that draws a card when it dies. Do you play those cards? Escaped Experiment is a card I'm reluctant to play. I prefer Dune Mover to it. Okay, okay. Nothing wrong with Dune Mover. I'm just saying, like, just so you get an idea, like, sure. the attack ability is not relevant to me. It's nice when it comes up, but it's not a, something I consider. Malkatar's Watcher, on the other hand, is amazing. Okay. There's a lot of one drops in this set, and it goes so well with Unctus's Retrofitter, the one blue and two, mm-hmm. two, three, toxic one that turns into a four, four, that, like, the ideal curve in this deck is the Watcher into the Unctus Retrofitter. Now, you're going to get one Retrofitter on average, probably. Maybe, like, 0.8 Retrofitters or something, you know, some number. But when you have two Retrofitters, that Watcher, you're never going to regret taking that ever again. Yeah. Because there's just nothing wrong with that curve. And you can mulligan to five and have that curve and be totally fine with it. And so, like, you have better mulliganing opportunities with cards like Watcher in your deck because it lets you kind of like trade and get your card advantage back. And so having three Melkatra's Watcher just lets me know that I can mulligan to, to six or five more aggressively. And also it's just not a slouch on turn two. Like it blocks a lot of things that are important. Yep. To it blocks the three, one toxic two. It blocks the death touch black uh, toxic one guy. It blocks their dune mover. It blocks the two, one toxic for one black and one blue uh, flyer. Uh, it blocks a lot of stuff. Bar Batterfist. Blocks Batterfist, exactly. Now I'm not over the moon about it. Sure. But it's something that you can take late and it's not totally terrible. But again, it's not good on the play. Totally fine. Blue-white crushes anybody in the play, no matter what's going on. <laughs> it's good on the draw because I'm going to be blocking with it. Right. And it allows me in games where I'm not behind immediately to get the damage in over time. Even while I'm defending, I can get one or two points of damage in alongside a, sw- a swooping lookout, which is that one white, one two flyer vigilance, which is better than any white uncommon or common in the set, by the way, for those that don't know. <laughs> because it, it has two toughness, which I've already talked about. I'd play it one two for one white. If there was a one white, one two artifact, I'd play it in the set over almost anything, almost any two drop. But this one has flying and vigilance too. It, again, it goes with retrofitter. So like that's what I look for is those flying cheap creatures that have either two toughness or they have some other thing going for it like Watcher where it's going to be good on the play. It's adding to the board. It, it, it's not as optimal as other uh, creatures, but it's not terrible on the play, but it's better on the draw. It helps me defend. It helps me get into the game early. Sure. You know the cephalopod, that zero five for four mana, blue, white, it gets plus one plus zero for every artifact you have. Mm-hmm. I take swooping lookout over that card because <laughs> it's so much more important for you to have an early presence than a nine, five flyer for four. Right. Nine, five flyer for four, who who give, who cares? Like, are you even going to cast it or are you even going to get to attack with it? No, but I care about blocking a one power creature on turn one and then they can't attack for three turns. That's worth its weight in gold. Sure. To answer your question, what am I thinking about during the draft? Early cards over everything and early cards that are good on the draw or at least they favor the eye of Melkatar on the draw, which Melkatar's Watcher does. Right. It's a card I can play after eye so that I can attack with eye and have a defender back because I can play two two drops. The more two drops I have, the more times I can play double spell on turn four and attack with the, the four four. If I can do that and not die, it's over. And that's one of the reasons, too, Surgical Skull Bomb is nice because there's a lot of situations where just being able to cast an artifact that costs one, whether it's making your Justicar 3-2, it turns on Eye of Malkator and you can leave tricks up. Yes. That's a big deal. Or even you have four mana and you play the Skull Bomb and make your Justicar 3-2. You've got Chrome Prowler in your hand and they block with a 2-2 and now the game's basically over. Right. To your point, Chrome Prowler is the reason why Skull Bomb is even better than it would normally be. Now, Basilica Spell Bomb, it's fine, whatever. You don't want to play it if, if you can avoid it, but Surgical is good because it impacts your opponent regardless of where you're at. Right. Good on the draw, good on the play, whatever. But being able to activate Melkatar the 4-4 four, four, for one mana, pass with three mana up, and play Prowler, that's where it's at. You want one-drop artifacts to be able to do that that are relevant. And Skull Bomb, only the blue Skull Bomb really does that for you and maintain relevance. Basilica Skull Bomb technically does it, but the upside is sort of like win more. Not win more, but like, you know, there's comeback mechanics associated with it. But it's it's less traditionally relevant and it costs you two mana when it's bad in a deck where you don't have any mana to spare. But Surgical is not that way. So having three or four Surgicals in your deck allows you to do things with Eye of Mulcatar that you could not do otherwise, which is to say you can play it on three in your deck, be on the draw, and not feel like you're just going to lose immediately because you have access to a something that costs one that you can attack with and turns on the rest of the things that enable this defense of blue-white to operate. Okay, but what do you do if you just don't get enough artifacts in the draft to turn on all your Eyes of Malgator and all this other stuff? I've never had less than 15 artifacts in any blue-white deck I've ever had. Just Okay. It's always possible. (laughs) It's just so open because of the meta. 100%. You're never going to be short on artifacts. It's never going to happen. And also when you pass Lucas to your opponent, uh, (laughs) then it's more likely that they're going to pass you artifacts back. That's critical. Oh, yeah. And it doesn't have to be Luca, right? It can be Ravager or it can be... Let me sum it up this way. A blue-white artifact deck with a Drown and Icker in your board is so much worse than a blue-white artifact deck without one in the board. Right. 
because your opponents, the other people in the draft should have that in their pile so that they're not taking artifacts. So if you took a, a card because you thought you might play black and then decided to pivot into blue-white, it's so much worse. So much worse because you didn't get the initial signals right. Part of the benefit of this deck in particular is so many of the cards you want are not wanted by other decks. And so when you get to pick nine and pick 10 in particular in pack one, you are going to have a really, really good idea how open this deck is. If that Chrome Prowler wheels, if that Eye of Malkator wheels, you're going to have a pretty good idea that you can do basically what you want. Yeah, don't grab a soda during the last picks in this set. You're definitely going to have the option to take these cards and you're going to have to be available because like, you're going to get these cards that you're happy to play 14th pick all the time, just constantly in ways I've never experienced before. And that really feels like, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, it just feels like your approach is a whole. Yeah. Get value out of the late draft chaff. I try not to be like, you know, mind my privilege here because I love this format. Wow. Everybody hates it. I love it. It's a scrappy, <laughs> urgent crisis. Mm-hmm. I am okay with making these like tough tourniquet decisions where like, okay, lose the leg. Who needs it? We got to win this game. That's where I operate. <laughs> no limbs is not zero is what you're saying. <laughs> Tis but a flesh wound. Yeah. <laughs> Dude, everybody's like 35% uh, on the draw. And I'm, I take that as like, a, how can I get that to 45? Like my eyes beat up. Like, oh, this is awesome. How can I take advantage of that? We have to post a picture of Greg's face on the Tis But a Flesh Wound guy from Monty Python. Yeah, yeah. Right, yeah, that'll, that'll <laughs> yeah. have to So I made it very abundantly clear last week that I hate blue. Are there any other blue cards, commons, or anything that you think are worthy of shouting out? Shouting out, yes. Consideration, yes. So people are going to look at the cards like the 1-4 flyer and say like, okay, take it or leave it. Like, I get it. It's a good blocker. It doesn't have a lot of synergy in the blue-white artifact deck, but I'm happy to see it. And they do table more often than I think is reasonable. But that's not the exciting part. Like, everybody kind of knows you can play that card and it's going to be pretty good in your deck. The card that people don't know that I think is like highly playable is Glistener Seer. It's a 1-blue, 0-3. And it performs the very same function that the 1-4 flyer does. It has high toughness to mana ratio, and it maintains relevance through the game. Now, I know that sounds weird for a 0-3, but <laughs> in this set, there's a lot of two-power, one-power creatures you can block. There's a lot of mites just laying around that they're trying to get through for one damage. It's kind of like Undying was in the Innistrad set. 0-3 was more relevant in that set than normal. Not that it made it playable, but like it just had relevance because you could make sure that you had a creature that could take on this extra extraneous going wide token that your opponent has. Additionally, it's just a one mana spell that you can, because you're not doing anything on turn one if you don't have one drops. If I have three crawling chorus for one mana, I'm not playing Glistener Seer, but if I have zero one drops and like I have a few skull bombs and that's it, I'm playing two Glistener Seer at least. And I'm totally happy with it because they can put on a Mirren Bardish, that equipment. Sure. They can help me play 15 lands because they can scry during my upkeep or whatever. Like it's just, it's not nothing. And because you're never going to get to a point in the game where you're like, oh, I'm out of cards. Like this is not like typically how things go. Then like having the card in play versus a spell that you're deciding between on turn five that you're never going to be able to see both in play. I'd rather have the zero three and not have that choice later because that's, that's effectively what you're giving up is when you play a card early, you're not going to have the freedom of motion later to decide what to play because you have less cards to choose from. But in this format, what you're not giving up is overall card advantage. You're not going to get to a point where I'm down on cards. That's why I lost. At least that's not my experience. So because of that, I don't mind wasting a card in a zero three that's going to buy me at least five life. And on the upside, it legitimately is good with things like even that, that equipment, that, that gold helmet that gives plus zero, plus one when it equips. That's a four toughness guy. That's not nothing to slatch at. And it fixes your mana. So on, it feels weird to say a one mana zero three is good in the mulligan, but it is. Because it helps you get to a place where you can get to the, the important parts of your curve early, which is what you need when you're down on cards. Uh, and when you're on the draw, you just want to have a spell that your opponent has to play a pump spell through. And that's what that does. I love that card. I have an experience from my first PTQ top eight in Paper Magic. It was Zendikar Limited. And I made the semifinals. And I'm playing against a guy. I have no idea what his name was. I don't remember. But I remember very, very specifically something that happened in that game. He played the card Kraken Hatchling, which was a one mana zero four. My boy. Yeah. One mana zero four. No text. Vanilla. No text. And I was like, all right, you know what? There's a lot of tricks in this format. Maybe I can like trick him into not blocking. And I went to go to attack. And before I even grabbed my creature, he just would shove the Kraken Hatchling in 
in front of the creature that I was about to attack with before I even had a chance to declare the attackers. And he did that every single turn. He just kept taking the thing and just like manually like sticking it in front of my creature. I don't even remember what his name, what his face looked like. Maybe that person's listening right now. And if so, memorable and hilarious experience, to be honest with you. But Greg, I imagine based on what I know about you saying mess with their curve, that the glistener seer is getting in front of every single one and two power creature that it can possibly get in front of when given the choice. Yeah, which is great because, you know, you don't have to feel bad about losing it, which is sort of like emotionally satisfying. (laughs) There's no risk of of attachment to your permanent. But again, like it's just, it's got toughness that's relevant that can block that won't wane in effectiveness over time. Now, Kraken Hatchling was an all-star in that format because it was an aggressive format, hyper-aggressive. Yeah, right. Um, And much like this set, which I think a lot of the same lessons in Zendikar Limited back then would have been relevant if I had a lot of the knowledge I had in the the last 10 years back then, I would have probably played a lot differently. But, you know, cards like, uh, I don't want to extend this analogy too far, but like cards like Into the Royal back then weren't as good as they looked because it was four mana to bounce this permanent and draw a card or whatever in a format that you couldn't afford it. So blue was really bad in that set. And for the same reason why blue is kind of bad in this set, or rather it's difficult to play correctly um, or play in a way that's viable because you're always on the defensive. Almost got you there. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Viable is is all I promise you. (laughs) But but Glister Seer, again, if if they're going to have to play a pump spell in order to make you regret blocking with it unless you block a creature with three power and there's plenty of creatures that have two power they're not gonna have just creatures with three power so it's always going to maintain relevance or take a card out of their hand and it's going to cost more than one so what's the worst that could happen so are there any parting thoughts you have on blue white or any cards that you want to highlight greg you know they have the warning labels on the on the on the hair dryers you know don't put in the water yeah so th- th- I, this is a card i'm going to give you with this uh it's, it's called veil of assimilation it's one white and one it's an artifact which is enough for this deck already no, just kidding uh, <laughs> whenever it comes into play or any other artifact comes into play you can give any creature you control plus plus one in vigilance yes not a great card on the face of it it seems like a card they can kind of mitigate by like just blocking differently it's kind of a sorcery speed effect for the most part not with chrome prowler but you get the idea yep you don't want to rely upon it but the reason i like it is because in this set it lets you play defense and it gives you kind of a mana advantage while not falling behind in the race because in the blue white deck if you're not threatening their life total even on the draw you're going to kind of fall behind more than you want to and this card helps you turn the corner and it doesn't cost that much to do it so like on turn four or five, you can play along with your two drop or three drop uh, on those turns. And all of a sudden you're attacking with your eye for five or you're attacking with your other creature for three and it can still block. So they have to trade or take it and then deal with the blocker. So it gives you a weird sort of mitigation to the problem you'd otherwise have where you can't attack because then you won't be able to block. So this card does that at zero cost once you play it once. It, it does so for the rest of the game, like a Planeswalker effect. It's awesome. And it's a great example of a card I'd never play in a million years. <laughs> your own risk. I would like to chime in and add two thoughts on this card. Number one, I think when you look on 17 lands, pretty much any card that says artifact on it, whether it's got a I have Malkator, it's got Romanable Justicar, or this card, Veil of Simulation, I think the win rates on those cards are lower than they can be because people are playing them in decks with like 10, 11, 12 artifacts and saying, hey, that's pretty good. I got 10, 11, 12 artifacts. It is not as good than when you have 19 or 20 or something sometimes like literally 24 cards that either make or are artifacts in your deck. Yeah. They're just twice as good, if not more than that. And it's a good lesson in general. Whenever you've got an extremely linear card, the 17 lands win rate is just always going to be lower than what is possible if you focus an entire deck's momentum behind it. And this card is a 47.9% game in hand win rate. So I think it classifies as a bad card. (laughs) Absolutely (laughs) classifies as a bad card. Negative five improvement when drawn. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, that's that tells you something right there. But the other point that I would like to make is uh, Greg and I have been paired twice on the ladder so far. The first time, he absolutely rolled me. It was the least close game of all time. And in the second game, it was pretty close. He's probably a little bit ahead. And I go to attack steps with a 2-1 mandible Justicar with two Veil of Assimilations in play. And Greg doesn't <laughs> yeah. block and is at seven. And I cast Charge of the Mites to get give the mandible justicar plus six plus six and win the game and i felt (laughs) great greg it felt really really good to pull that one over on you because i'm not sure again (laughs) there's anybody i fear more playing against right now than you out there so what was in your hand at that time not one not two but three chrome cats yes three chrome cats (laughs) and i just went to attacks and he had a bunch of creatures to play we just got that two one in there tapping the life figure probably wasn't the right play there the idea i was i was trying to trap you for lethal on the next turn i was thinking what's the worst thing that happen? he does like he plays his his own prowler after blockers and does what like so yeah but charge the mites with uh veil assimilation is like its own form of uh ambrosia in 
it's just wonderful. <laughs> and in general, it makes your other flash spells higher, which again, I value pretty highly. I don't value charge the mites as highly, although I do include it when I need to. It's sort of a difficult spell to play on the draw. It's expensive. So I try not to play it if I don't have to. But Chrome Prowler with Veil is now you don't have to play combat tricks anymore either, kind of. Like it, it, Veil is now your combat trick too. So like the mm. more roles it can play, the better it operates. And with, if you have four Chrome Prowler, I, have, I will play two Veil, no questions about it, because it helps me, uh, you know, now my only problem, which was mana before, is sort of gone. And now I can just play a game much differently uh, with only creatures and, and threats and the instant speed pumps and all that stuff. is just very nice. It all works together very nicely. And it's an artifact pump spell in that case, which is, again, the reason why you don't want to play pump spells normally is because it's not an artifact. Great, great card. Well, I think you made a pretty good case here for white, blue, but let's move on to the last section with... Lightning round. I know you have more thoughts on more terrible cards, so please... Now is your opportunity to share them with us. One of the worst cards you can play and say, I had a good reason. Well, I'm going to tell you right now, <laughs> if you don't have four drops, you're going to play Mirror Kinsmith. You're going to, and you're going to be happy with it, okay? I went 4-0 in the day two open with five Mirror Kinsmiths in my deck. Now, granted, I probably should have played four, but I wanted the screenshots here. <laughs> and that's the four mana three one that finds another mirror in your deck. And there's only two other mirror, I think, in the entire format besides itself. That's right. If you have Mirror Convert, it's a no-brainer, you know? But Mirror Custodian's a little bit tougher to stomach playing to accompany it, uh-huh. which is you know not necessary. But if you have zero, again, if you have like two indoctrination attendant, you're not playing any mere kinsmith. No need. If you have rib skiff and some other four uh, and like that three two flyer equipment, whatever, you're not playing any mere kinsmith. But if you have zero four drops and you just like the way the draft went out, you're gonna wish you picked up those mere kinsmiths in the draft, you know, fourteenth to thirteenth pick because it's not that bad in your opening hand to have a mere kinsmith and know for the rest of the game that you're gonna have that late game engine to rely upon. You're going to have these triggers every turn for I. You're going to have these triggers every turn for this. You're going to be able to block something relevant. You're going to be able to block the chimney uh, goblins. And specifically in blue-white artifacts, whereas in a deck yes. like red-green, it's going to be terrible. Right. Yeah, so I should have been more specific about not in just blue-white, but but again, I only draft blue-white. I mean, I draft other format colors too, but blue-white's like over 70% of my drafts are blue-white from pack zero, pick zero. But in white-green, you're never going to play that card, obviously, but it's still not as bad as you think. If you have zero four drops and four mere kinsmith, you should consider it in any deck, frankly, if you have a dearth of late-game options. It's basically like a green fat of incubation mm. it's not that much worse like it is worse but it's not like it's not so bad if you draw two it's bad but i drew two in a mulligan once and i put one on the bottom and i recommend it it's a great feeling 48 percent game and win rate <laughs> you know keep it in the back of your mind take them over terramorphic expanse if you know because you don't want to play tap lands in your deck keep it in the back of your mind if you don't have the four drops you, you can rely upon this being your late game instead of something else okay there's that follow-up meld web strider right that's the five drop five five vigilance vehicle with crew three and enters with an oil counter and you can crew it with an oil counter Not a great card, but if you're missing all your five drops and four drops again, and you just need something of relevance to play early, it's not the worst thing you can play. Don't consider it unplayable. It's totally just a role player, a five mana non-creature creature. creature. So if you have Atmosphere Surgeon, like two of them, Melbib Strider goes from, I don't want to play this card to kind of good. And again, it has Vigilance, which is really important for Blue White to turn the corner. And also just like not the worst card in the world to consider. Always consider late game cards having one or two hidden in your sideboard during the draft so that you don't have to take them later when you realize you're not top heavy enough, when you don't have the value later. And a bonus for Melbib Strider is that against me, the first time I ever saw one, I didn't actually read it and I didn't realize that you get the oil counter automatically and they just ate my 4-4. So, you know. Right. (laughs) There's some additional against people who don't read cards equity. Thanks for your contribution to the conversation, Garrett. (laughs) I appreciate that. No, Garrett picked up a point that I think is uh, people don't realize enough. When you play unfamiliar cards, you're going to have a higher percentage of people that have never seen it before, which means that they're going to make the one mistake that they're going to make exactly one time against you. No, yeah. Yeah. So like, take them. I mean, it's not wrong. Like, I, I, I'm i never going to make that mistake again, but I certainly did make it once. Other, other cards like that just like are important to consider. There's a counter spell that I see people play a lot. Yeah, bring the ending is one and a blue to counter a spell unless they pay two, or it just counters no matter what if they're corrupted. It's just so like tough to play on the draw that I just wanted to talk about it in terms of lightning round where like if you lack two drops nothing wrong with playing it but you should never be looking to play it Mm -hmm. however everybody's gonna be tapping out every turn if they're not they're losing so you can anticipate countering a spell on turn two and on turn three with that spell if you just pass they're going to play a spell into you so this counter spell is not as bad as it normally is and you're happy to counter anything at all with it so when you see bring the ending for example one blue and one don't consider it unplayable don't look to play it but if you're short on playables not even a question put it in your deck no problem totally fine 
fine. People tap out, mana is at a premium. So that's just a, a lightning round consideration for sure. Yeah, makes sense. Plated Onslaught. Instant for three white, white. That gives your team plus two, plus one. And it costs less for each artifact you have. In any deck, really. It's just a good option to have because you, there's more artifacts that just happen incidentally. In red, white, you have like two artifacts on average, you know. In like a white, green, you have like an artifact might somewhere. And it's not as good as Compliant Devotion, but it's a pump spell and it costs like three mana, two mana in certain situations. And it gives you an opportunity to go wide and win with it. It's not something you want to take highly, not unplayable as long as you have a dearth of pump spells or uh, a lack of way to win late game. Totally passable. If I say passable, I mean totally viable. Makes sense. Any other cards? Serum Snare, better than it's ever been because you can get them. The proliferate matters here. It's cheap. It's an instant, which I talked about before being important. And that's one in a blue to bounce something and proliferate if it was mana value three or less. And there's tokens everywhere. There's tokens where like you can just bounce it and it dies forever. Serum Snare. You should be playing it way more often than, than we want to. In fact, I think it's better than Surgical Skull Bomb, which I hope says enough right there in the artifact deck, mind you. Wow, that one definitely surprises me. <laughs> yeah, everybody's plays tricks in this format. You get the two for one and the tempo is insane. It's awesome on the draw because you're trading a card for mana. Wonderful. Perfect. It's where I want to be. And then uh, the proliferate gets them to exactly three counters of reasonable enough of the amount of the time. So if you, right. the more advisors you, the more gliders you have, the better that effect is going to be. So don't sleep on Serum Snare. It's wonderful. I can't stress enough, like in the blue red deck, it's the best, one of the best cards you can take. Same with the blue black deck. In the blue white deck, I can live without it, but it's 100% playable. Like it's it's barely worse than pacifism. It's funny because basically every blue card you talk about technically qualifies as a quote, bad card because of the game in hand win rates are all below average because of the unbalance of this format, so. Absolutely. We didn't even talk about that. The, how, how the 17 lands is useless for blue. Yeah. Like it's impossible to get a uh, good value there. Uh, or at least the insights we're typically used to using 17 lands data is uh, unavailable for blue. Right. Uh, you have to sort of make your own augmented association with with its true value. You have to do a lot more work to get some use out of what 17 lands is telling us with blue. Absolutely. The only blue card that I can say for sure you should play in a vacuum without worrying about it is the Jataxian Raptor, the 1-4 flyer for right. three. You can play any number of those and be totally happy with it. You're never going to be sad to see it on the play or the draw. However, you don't want to play too many in a blue artifact deck if you have synergy. Don't replace synergy with it, but yeah. it's a good role player if you don't have cards that are better that are also artifacts. Like You're always going to play them because you're never going to be totally Full. Makes sense. Well, let's wrap this whole thing up in closing arguments. Greg, it was an absolute pleasure to have you on. And I have to say, I was feeling a little middling about the format, but after our conversation, I'm like excited for the next draft. So I'm going to try to try some of this stuff. Maybe, I don't know. You've reinvigorated my, uh, my interest in Phyrexia all be one, which I was kind of feeling was getting a little bit stale. So thank you for that. Literally no higher praise exists. I appreciate <laughs> what you said. Thank you. I'm happy to talk about it at length. Any, the fledgling gray duckling, you know, ugly duckling formats. Like I love them. They're so good. And I said it before, but I'll say it again. I have learned an unbelievable amount about how to think through being on the back foot immediately um, yeah. <laughs> in this format and and just think through those kinds of situations. So appreciate that. And I'm very excited that this gets to be shared with uh, the rest of the limited community here pretty soon. So it's really fun to make cards that don't survive scrutiny wildly playable. And so th- uh, <laughs> nothing like a bad format to do that with. Uh, oh, yeah. It's just awesome. It's my favorite thing to discover viability in places where no one would expect it. It's the reason why we opened the walnut, you know? Diamond in the rough, and this is a rough format. Greg, thank you so much for having us. Where can people find you? So uh, I I wouldn't say I have like any like overt presence on, uh, you know, I used to stream, for example, which like might happen again in the future, but mostly I'm just like on Twitter hatching plans. But otherwise I'm sort of like a, a hermit. I live like I'm 70 years old. Mostly I'm in a dark room. They, they, might, they, might, they might see me there. <laughs> well, we'll just have to capture you for more episodes because this is honestly a total blast. And thank you a million. Yes. I'm really happy you guys reached out. Uh, I enjoyed last time and this time was even more fun. So I look forward to doing this uh, as, as often as you're willing. We'll definitely have you back. Absolutely. And that about wraps it up. So thanks for listening to Mystical Dispute. You can support the show on Patreon. I'm Garrett Gardner. You can find me at twitch.tv slash gguards. And I'm Carl Chase. You can find me at Twitter at Tuda Cubed. And as Greg said, you can find him living like a seven-year-old hermit or whatever <laughs> on Hatching Plans on Twitter. Shout out to 17 Lands for the data. As always, you can support them on Patreon as well. And until next time, stay chill. Adios. Bye. Now is your platform to talk about Eye of Malkator for 27 minutes or however long you yeah, want. Yeah, I'll, 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 I'll try to keep it under half an hour. Um. <laughs>